Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. My name is Jeanette Abney, and I want to thank you for joining me here at Precious Predicaments Blog Talk Radio. I want to first thank my Father for blessing me and waking me up this morning and giving me the activities of my and for all that he has done in my life. Now, on Tuesdays is when we normally do from the, the segment pulpit to the couch. However, today we're going to be providing some biblical teachings, but we're going to take it to a different level as today we're going to be talking about parent-child attachment. Now, even in the Bible, they talk about parent-child relations. We're talking about sparing the rod for the child. We talk about honor thy mother and thy father. But when we talk about these things, a lot of individuals have no clue, per se, as it relates to how do we even give? Now, today's show is designed as parent-child relational issues. And when we start talking about honoring mother and father, a lot of that stems from what is the relationship like? How did they bond as a when they were younger? Were there any other type of um, issues going on within the family? I had a person I was talking to today. She gave me a good one. Talking about high levels of emotional processing, meaning was there a lot of stuff going on in the family. Now, being a parent does not come with a manual, and a secure parent-child bond is important. It is important for the survival and the development of the child. Now, the child learns through their parents. Now, you hear I didn't say from, but through. Through caring behaviors to have a sense of worth and to emphasize and to co- cooperate, and I say empathize, but I mean empathize with other individuals because we find that a lot of individuals lack empathy, as well as cooperate with others. Such will also help with individuals with coping skills, social skills, so that the child can form a strong relationship with others in the future. Now, with all that is going on in the world, many individuals, especially children, they need their parents. Parents also would benefit from obtaining knowledge and resources as it relates to understanding your child. Now, I have the other individual on the line with me, so let me join her. Good morning. How are you doing? How you doing? Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. You know I had to throw out that high level of emotional processing. (laughs) Yes. I thought that was a a good term to use. Now, I don't know if you want to tell your name, but you can if you want. Okay, so tell them this. My name name is Shanti Register, licensed marriage and family therapist. I specialize in in children, parenting, and trauma. Um, Trauma sometimes is any adverse childhood experience. And between the day you're conceived all the way to age number one, your child is learning and communicating and already starting that relationship. So the book that I wrote is Learning What Works, Discover Your Baby and Yourself, so you can ensure a healthy attachment and ensure that any adverse childhood experience that may come up, you will be able to respond in a way that's supportive to your baby, to yourself, and to the relationship. Wow. And throughout the show, I want you to provide information on where they can find your book. Because like I said earlier, there's no such thing as a perfect parent. So today's show is not designed to make individuals feel bad, feel guilty. It's more to educate, encourage, and to empower Because a lot of times when you're talking about that attachment, sometimes parents may have missed out on the attachment with their parents. And I was listening to Jamal Bryant last night. He was talking about sometimes it's never too late, you know, to go back and learn, to go back and change things. Because I was talking about how that's the blueprint. Now, let's talk about that a little bit because with you being a child and working with, with children, Are you finding that a lot of parents are now coming to you with a lot of concerns in regards to their children's behaviors and thought process? 
Yes, most children or most parents call in with concerns for their children when they start seeing um, behaviors that they don't approve of or behaviors that they don't understand. Um, behavior is a form of communication. Your baby does not have the communication to say in words what their needs are. And when the needs are unmet, it will come out in behavior problems. When the mom or the dad or the primary caregiver, the, the one that the attachment figure for that child, when they respond to that child like their form of communication is a nuisance, then the relationship ends up becoming very emotionally intense rather than emotionally safe. Wow, I like that. So it kind of tells me, and it's, it's giving me an example when I start talking to a writer, I better stop being able to get on my nerves. Because to me, it's my nerves. <laughs> but when we start talking about that attachment, we don't like that bonding, and a lot of individuals, for some reason, especially men, have a perception just because a a woman give birth, she's automatically going to be maternal. Can you speak on that a little bit? Right. So you're talking about a maternal instinct. A maternal instinct will come from the culture of the family. Some cultures and some families have maternal instincts to be very hypervigilant with their children. Um, some maternal instincts are very um, accepting and just nurturing. Some maternal, like depending on the culture that you're from, the maternal instinct may not be healthy. It may not be what your child needs to form that relationship. And that has to do with family systems, generational, you know, culture type stuff. Not saying that anybody's culture is wrong or anybody's culture is right. It's just that we all have strengths and weaknesses. And some weaknesses may be triggering to our child, or sometimes your child's weaknesses may be triggering to you. Mm-hmm. You know what, and, um, and that's that, interesting to say because sometimes even Dr. Phil, he talked about you can't get on have, you can't teach what you don't know. And this is the opportunity for parents to gather information and resources. A lot of times they don't know, and they really don't. And I was right. some books I wanted to write and, and you know, and talk some things because I'm going to put it out there, and I said, somebody steal my place. Some people know any better. You know, they do right. the best yeah. they can with what they got, and you don't want to punish the parent. And even as a therapist, and we're going to dive and dab into this topic, but parents are coming in and wanting to just drop their child off, whether it's at school with a therapist or with somebody, even in church, and say, fix them. Just fix my child. But sometimes we have to look at the whole dynamics of the culture, the system, and finding mm-hmm. out what resources they already haven't been utilizing. That's right. And when it comes to that attachment, depending on the age of the child, and depending, well, yeah, depending on the age of the child, and depending on the unmet need of the child, the relationship is the client, not the child, not the mom. It's the relationship. And the relationship is what gives you that healthy attachment system. And your attachment system is what acts as an immune system to cortisol, you know, which is the hormone that comes out of your brain when you're stressed out. Because when mm-hmm. you have a healthy attachment it provides dopamine and serotonin and nephrephrine. And those mm-hmm. hormones are the ones that combat the cortisol. So if you have a healthy attachment system, it doesn't matter what type of adverse childhood experience you might have or even any experience you have as an adult because your attachment system will come in and combat that stress. It will combat that that cortisol to where you will be able to still um, function within your own expectations, values, and morals. Wow. And you know what? I like what you talked about with the expectations, values, Mm-hmm. And morals. A lot of that comes from what the child gets from their parents, because, like I said earlier, yep. they learn through the parents, not actually from. Even though some can become habitual, but when we're trying to teach individuals how to bond, how to 
to gain a sense of their worth, how to learn empathy, how to sympathize, how to learn to cooperate, how to develop um, problem-solving skills, social skills, and strong relationships. What happens is if the child cannot connect with someone or attach to someone, especially Mm -hmm. they find it difficult in society because that trust issues become a factor. Sometimes paranoia becomes a factor. And yes. like I said, we can touch a little bit on pervasive developmental disorders and some of the, the mental health issues that we're seeing in with children coming from that attachment, lack of, or if it's too much. Yes, exactly. I, I want to highlight what you said about you said it a few times, it's not the parent's fault. Every parent that I've ever worked with or ever met, any any other parent even that I've just experienced, every parent has a benevolent intent, even if the discipline is wrong. Her intent was benevolent or his intent was benevolent, you know, I don't, whatever pronoun and whatever, because it could be a grandma, whatever the mm-hmm. primary, whoever the primary is, if it, that's that's the piece that I think I want to highlight is that there's always a benevolent intent. If you can realize that you have that benevolent intent for your child and that you love that child, then you'll be motivated to change your interactions with that child in order for that child to meet his developmental milestones or his psychosocial stages and milestones. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to say that we're talking to uh, individuals, and I would like for you to to little bit give us more information. When we talk about developmental milestones because part of what yeah. I see as a problem is a lot of parents have these expectation of their children, and they don't mm-hmm. understand what developmental milestones is. We think that they got to be a certain height, a certain weight, but we don't know about mm-hmm. the intellectual part because even when we look at some of the pervasive developmental disorders like ADHD, um, autism, Asperger's, so a mm-hmm. lot of these uh, things that are we're learning now as a therapist, as psychiatrist, and psychologist, parents have yeah. no clue as what it That's meant right. in regards to developmental That's right. So can you explain on that yes. a little bit? Uh, yeah, definitely. In my book, I separate the child's age by month, just because during in the first year that milestones go really fast. Um, but it actually says what milestones you should be looking for. So that way, and you, and it's also, it, it, this book is really on attunement. So you know where your child is with that developmental milestone and you know what to look for at age. There's a lot of parent education in here. When it talks about attachment, though, it takes three things into account. It takes sensory and it takes um, sensory temperament together to develop that attachment. So, for example, I've noticed if I'm working with someone who's 12 or 13, they'll come in and say that they're very, very loud. But mom's sensory level, her threshold for noise is just not that high. So mm-hmm. mom gets triggered when the child talks too loud or plays too loud and responds in a way that the child feels like there's something wrong with him. When in all actuality, they just have two different sensory thresholds. And uh-huh. that's okay. And so my book talks about the different sensory um, thresholds, even con- including the proprioception and the vestibular. Uh-huh. That's the other two senses that we don't normally talk about. Because sometimes if you find a child that's throwing themselves into the wall, they're trying to meet their vestibular needs, trying to figure out what is, what is the strength of my body in relation to the strength of a wall or a bed right. or a chair wow. or my, my head, you know, mm-hmm. um, that's the vestibular perception is, well, where's my body in space? So you might start seeing a, a child just spin and spin and spin. And then the mom or dad or the primary caregiver just yells at him and says, stop spinning and sit down in the chair. But wow. that expectation would be unrealistic. And so mm-hmm. knowing 
and being attuned to your child will give you realistic expectations. So you'll know your child's sensory threshold. You'll know what's too much for them. You'll know what's not too much for them, that you'll know what they are seeking out and needing more of. So, and then you'll also know how it relates to you. A lot of this book talks about the self-care of the primary caregiver. For example, if you know your sensory threshold level is really low, but your child's sensory threshold level is very, very high, well, we need to start talking about some self-care. Like, what do we need to do? Put some soft music on in the background? Do we need to, you know, do you respond well to softness? Do we need to get you some fluffy slippers? Do we need a rocking chair? You know, like, we need to start talking about how we can implement things for you to care about yourself at the exact same time that you're interacting with your child. So that way you both can be in what I like to call the green space. The green space is when you're alert, you're calm, you're ready to learn. You know, so that's interesting. The thing you is because you can attend we have that for from a whether alcohol or, you know, domestic violence. There's a lot of things that I do practice here. I'm going to do with the university. I notice that, like, with the parents, cocaine, do, um, crying, kids sound like, oh, my God, maybe horns or sirens, you know, and it's just a cry to where um, you kind of lost me there, your call dropped. I need you to call back in. So they can, um, hear things a lot louder and what I wanted to talk about and when you were talking about the attuned sensory threshold, I um had an incident with my grandson where he kept saying scratch me, scratch me, I, I don't want to be alone and I was listening to him like, are you itching? Are you, you know, I don't know if his body just needed that type of stimulation, but when he was seeing it, I didn't get it even as a therapist. So when we're talking about being attuned to our children, it, sometimes individuals gotcha. Sometimes with that attunement, sometimes we don't even we're not even in tune to ourselves because of the expectations that we have for our children. We think that they should know certain things because when he was talking about scratch me, I thought maybe his back was itching, you know, and he was like, I was crying myself to sleep. It was getting on my nerves. <laughs> like, what is wrong with you? So part of that is that bonding to where I know with him, he wants to bond with me. And a lot of times, and, mm-hmm. and I can see where it can be frustrating for some parents, especially if you have more than one child. Another thing I wanted to ask you and I saw this it with my nephews. I saw it with my grandchildren, headbanging behavior. And when you were talking about the sensory, the taste, the touch, the smell, and, mm-hmm. and all that, we have kids that sometimes, I yes. have kids that headbang. And my grandson used to do that. And then he'll pat the floor to see if the floor was too hard. If the floor was too hard, he's like, oh, I don't think I'm going to bump my head on this floor. You know, but mm-hmm. what, how mm-hmm. do you help parents? Help them understand that you ain't gonna be putting your child on a helmet and putting them on a little red, on a little yellow bus. How can you connect with parents and let right. them know that's not the issue? There's something called self-stimming behaviors. This means self-stimulating. When your sensory integration is not um, processing and integrating. I I hate to use the word normal, but normally is the way I'll say commonly, then you do things to seek out the sensory stimulation and it could be banging your head, but that normally, anytime that you see any type of self-stimulation behaviors like that, it's because a child is either understimulated or Mm -hmm. overstimulated and Mm -hmm. that's how they're self-regulating. That's how they're self-regulating. And so mm-hmm. there's, I like to say that parents or caregivers, even preschool teachers, before the child is three, we need to have co-regulating. There needs to be somebody there to help teach the child what they're feeling, what the feeling name is, how to breathe, how to cope with it, talk to the child, normalize the feeling. And when they're three, then they can start trying to do increase their self-regulation without the other person there. But between zero to three, that's when the child is learning all about themselves and why do I want to bump my head? Um, and maybe the mom doesn't know. Maybe the 
preschool teacher doesn't know, but that's when we reach out for support and say, hey, this is a behavior I don't know about, but it's not about fix my child. It's about how can I support my child because what we Mm -hmm. want to do is fix the relationship. Well, you know, and the thing is, I remember seeing it with my nephew when he was a little kid. He would take his hand when he would go to sleep and put his hands, lock his fingers, and just bang his head, bang, bang. And I used to be like, why is he doing that? And I didn't, I didn't get it. Mm. I, that was the first time I had ever seen that before. And even when I, because I retired as a bus driver from the Oceanside Unified School District, and I used to work with children mm. that were, um, had learning disabilities, that were in special ed, and they would wear helmets. And that's why I said it, and I wasn't trying to be mean or, you know, or in, in mm-hmm. regards to that, because that was what they would do to protect the skull. Because if you got a kid that's banging his head, you don't want him to have any injuries is what the helmet was for. Right. But see now and kids we thought had a certain look, but now we're seeing these type of behaviors in a lot of kids. And you you indicated the age of three and the age of three is normally when clients are either sent to the regional center to get some type of um of diagnosis or resources to see if -hmm. there's any type of childhood pervasive disorders. And the but right now because of COVID I was watching the news last night, and they were saying that, by law, kids really don't have to go to school really to the first grade. So now a lot of children may not even be um, diagnosed or seen, or they may go up under the radar for many, many years later on in life because they're not getting Um, the care that that they need. Right, unless that caregiver is attuned. If that caregiver is attuned to her baby and she knows that this behavior is not common and she knows that her, let's say, for example, I don't know, the baby's sensitive to noise. Well, we already use sound. Let's do something else. Let's say he's sensitive to touch and so uh-huh. he can't get dirty and, you know, he can't get wet or he can't, you know, uh-huh. nothing, nothing can touch his body that's like not okay, right? But let's uh-huh. say the parents are very adventurous and they're making slime and doing Play-Doh and doing this and doing that all day and they're seeing their child tantrum, 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 tantrum every time they're trying to play that relationship is becoming more distant than it is close because they're not understanding each other. But if that Mm -hmm. mom was attuned to the baby, she can go and there's all types of zero to three ABA speech centers that are open, that come in home, they do assessments in the home, they do treatment in the home, even during COVID, because zero to three, that's when 80% of your brain is developed. So by the time you're three, yeah, a lot of parents are starting to see because they go into preschool at that time. Other people are starting to notice things and that, things like that. But if you can get like a child, like I have a child, I got him that he's, I noticed there was no eye contact. I noticed that he was not responding the way that we're taught milestones should be going. I took him and to a neurologist, I got him diagnosed with autism, and he has been in speech therapy. He's been in ABA, and he's about to be three come December, and he about met all his milestones. Like, they don't even want to give him services anymore, um, Mm -hmm. even though he still has his diagnosis, but that's because I got services so early. If you can get services for your baby between zero to three, then you won't have the challenges of three. That's why my book is so focused on early, early development, because zero to three is so important. But you know what? I have a, but one of the concerns, and it's a concern that I have, and you and I had this conversation, is a lot of times parents can be in denial about things because I remember I had a cousin and I noticed behaviors with his Mm -hmm. son. And when I would bring it to his attention, the mother didn't want to have the child diagnosed or seen because they didn't want to believe that the child had um, autism or Asperger's. And I'm watching this Mm -hmm. kid with a cup. I'm, I'm noticing this kid is making animal sounds. And I'm like, wait a minute, I ain't seen this part before. And the parent was in mm-hmm. denial because the parent did not want to have their child seen and didn't want to accept it, that she would be more content with my child has ADHD than to realize that my child is autistic. And I commend you for getting your child diagnosed. And, um, you know, you was listening to my show yesterday, and I was talking about my son, where my son I missed a lot of things until he was a teenager, but I was dealing with schizophrenia. 
and didn't know what schizophrenia yeah. was. So that's a whole different mm-hmm. issue. So when we start seeing the ADD, the, which is attention deficit disorder or attention deficit hyperactivity, we're now seeing kids. We don't want to give them symptoms of bipolar, but we've got kids that are um, having audiovisual hallucinations. We have kids that are having a lot mm-hmm. of different um, things going on in their brain. So sometimes the kids are having a hard time processing and even attaching to the parent even if the parent is trying to attach to the child. You know, we're seeing now more antisocial personality disorders, and we don't want to give kids labels, and it's not about labels because we're looking at symptoms. Let's talk about that a little bit. But you're talking about the older ages, right? I'm, you're talking I'm about teenagers, more right? Older ages. But you know what? I had a grandchild. I had a grandchild, and my grandchild was eight months mm-hmm. old, and she wouldn't even let anybody change her diaper. She would snatch the diaper off and bring it to you. She did not want to be bothered with people. And when she would go outside mm-hmm. to play, she would be mean. She would mm-hmm. put bees. You know, she would catch bees and bugs and throw them on other kids and thought it was funny. Mm-hmm. You know? Now, I want to share and was some... anybody there teaching her how she felt and what was I going was. on? Was anybody there teaching her that she's angry? I was. But, see, people thought that she was um, – they would t- call her crazy, and I told her to stop calling her crazy. But the thing is, uh-huh. and now she has seizures. So she dealt with a lot. She was born premature, first of all. Um, she witnessed okay. or in vitro domestic violence. So there was a lot of different things going on with uh-huh. this child. And it uh-huh. was an issue, but talking to the mother, the mother didn't understand and didn't know what to do. And I remember she would go to sleep with, like, screwdrivers by her and I would tell the mother be careful before she poke you or start poking you with some screwdrivers and she was like I was wondering why she do that to me I don't and you know and it, 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 it man it was interesting but the mother didn't the so mother didn't I want to say anything. so I want to say to all moms there's a difference between your feelings and not just moms, that's primary caregivers. I keep saying mm-hmm. moms, but I'm including all the primary caregivers. But there's a difference between your feelings and there's a difference between your child's feelings. Mm-hmm. You, it's okay to have different feelings. It's okay to have different perceptions. But you guys are two different people. So mm-hmm. when you feel yourself getting triggered or scared, because of a possible diagnosis, maybe you've been taught or been bullied or, you know, who knows what's in your culture and in your history to where diagnoses may be something that's not okay. Whatever that is, that's the primary caregiver's feelings and thoughts. It's not their child's feelings and thoughts. And I would really encourage every primary caregiver if you're seeing something that you don't know how to respond to, it doesn't mean that that's a diagnosis. It just means mm-hmm. that you need help in your relationship, and you can always go get help in your relationship. It doesn't mean it's mm-hmm. going to be a diagnosis. It just means that you don't know how to respond to it. And, yes, medical trauma in the womb, medical trauma at birth, that's a trauma. It needs to be addressed. We need trauma therapy. Mm-hmm. That's why we have child-parent psychotherapy. It's a trauma-based therapy for children who have had medical trauma at birth, who have had maybe domestic violence between zero and one. You know, trauma does affect the development. But if your child, if you're seeing something, I don't know how to respond to this. It's not an automatic diagnosis. But if you go get help in your relationship, maybe there is some, maybe there is a diagnosis that you can get support and resources for, and you'll have somebody to support you with it because that's your child's needs. It's not your needs. Your needs are you need to feel safe, but your child's needs is I need resources, and you have to separate yourself. You know what? I like that. I like that. That's your child's needs and not your needs. Because a lot of times parents, they are dealing with their own stuff. And uh, I'm thinking about my growing up in Compton. And like I said, when I had my son, I was 19 years old. So I didn't have a freaking clue. And I'm not going to say I did. And my mama couldn't help me because my mama couldn't help herself. And the problem, Mm -hmm. and one of the things (laughs) I remember with my son, 
as I'm thinking about him, and even today, the stuff, the crazy stuff he do get on my nerves. He used to stand on his tippy toes and scream, and just like stand on tippy toes mm. and just ah, and he'd be like, "What the hell is wrong with you?" He'll be in the grocery store and he'll say, "Mom, can I have some bubble gum?" Yes. You give him the bubble gum, he still stand on his tippy toes and scream. And there were times that I would walk out the store and I'll never forget a woman telling me, oh, he's going to be an opera singer. You know, and I, I couldn't mm. understand. Why are you? He didn't bang his head, but he would stand on his tippy toes and just scream. So when I see these things mm. with children now, because it re- I re- re- can recall some of the things I've seen with him, I try to communicate it to the mothers, and the mothers don't get it because they think, oh, well, no, it can't be, da, da, da. And, and like I said, even with his father, if I would have known my son's father had some issues that he had, girl, ain't no way that child of that man. But I didn't know. I right. didn't know these things even existed because now we have what's called right. the eight. We have, you know, individuals that are out there to help, but a lot of parents don't trust the help. They feel that individuals don't understand their pain. So they're coming from a different perspective because I remember back in the day when parents was running around making kids take Ritalin just to get a social security check, you know, for the family income and see, and that's not Mm -hmm. cool, but that's, you know, for individuals. And I've seen teachers try to get children on medicine just because they don't like their behavior, which is not cool either. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's it, you're speaking to the failures in the system and the oppression and the privilege, and it is in every piece of society, even psychology, even in parenting. If a mom has uh, insurance like Blue Cross, Anthem, Cigna, or whatever, you know, if they have a private insurance through an employer or whatnot. They feel more comfortable contacting a private therapist or a private doctor or private so-and-so and get their insurance to pay for it and go get services. If a child has Medi-Cal, you have to go to community mental health services, which is programs. There is DCFS attached. There's all types of fears attached with Medi-Cal and services. And so do not feel safe. Mm-hmm. I want to encourage every single parent out there If you need support, try and don't give up. Try to find someone that you feel safe with to get support Mm -hmm. because there is a level of fear there. mm -hmm. And I want to touch on African-Americans and um, Mm -hmm. because you and I both being African-American therapists and then trying to educate African-American parents sometimes can be quite challenging because of their defense mm-hmm. mechanisms, the denial, and we have to be sensitive to their needs and knowing where they're coming from, too. And, you know, um, not only with African-Americans, Asian, the Asian culture don't want to hear nothing that's yep. wrong with their children either. So we just have mm-hmm. to, you know, take that into consideration, educate ourselves yep. as well as educate others and let them know what type of resources are available. Because if an individual fails to provide their child with medical care, psychological services, that can be considered child neglect, child endangerment. And you don't want to threaten the parent. But, you know, us mm-hmm. even doing the show is to let them know that there is help and there's resources available. Now, I don't know if you're familiar. And with you can feel safe with those. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. Wait. I don't know. Have you there, ever there, done there, You can assessment? find companies that you can feel safe with. Mm-hmm. Have you ever done a CANS assessment? Yes. Now, Several times. I used to work for the wraparound program. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And I'm glad that that came about because with the CANS assessment, it assessed the needs and of the family not just the particular yes. client, because we like focusing on the identified patient, but it's a family system and a family issue because you have to teach the parents how to parent the child and parent the other children as well. Now, I want to share something, and it talks about the quality of the infant's parent attachment is a powerful predictor of a child's later social, 
an emotional outcome. By definition, a normally developing child will develop an attachment relationship with any caregiver who provides regular physical and emotional care regardless of the quality of that care. See, sometimes the kids don't understand the quality of the care because they they Mm -hmm. get used to it, and that can also become an issue. And it doesn't mean that, and that doesn't mean that fathers should just be saying, well, the mother should be able to do this, or the mother should be able to do that, because we a lot of times look at the mother as the primary caregiver. And in some cases, the father could be the primary caregiver, or the grandmothers, or the mm-hmm. aunties. Or the grandparents, so yeah. So when yep. village to raise a child, it really do. But you do need It really does. Yes. Yes, and it's important for you to feel safe because if you're not feeling safe with your support system, it's very, very, very easy not to be honest if you're trying to protect your own fears. But when you have a support system, it's so important to be honest because that way you can really meet the needs of your relationship with your baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I want to speak on this a little bit, too, because we touched on this when we're talking about you having your book from zero to three. And just from zero to one, some parents may suffer from um, postpartum depression. Yeah, postpartum. Yeah, I put that in my book, too. Okay, let's speak on that a little bit. Right. So I I developed, it's a very easy read. I want to say it's only like 45 pages. It's for, I made it to where teen moms that haven't graduated from high school can get it and read and, and develop a healthy relationship with your baby. The very first year is when a person develops trust. Either I can trust the people around me and I can trust my environment or I can't. If that child has not learned trust during the very first year, you will see that child still trying to gain trust throughout the rest of his life. That's why zero to three and zero to five, where they say it's the formative years, it's because these psychosocial milestones are all developed before the age of five. So I have a chart in my book, it's simple, 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 about how to know and meet your child's needs. So, for example, it'll tell you, what's my baby's behavior? Okay, what did I try? How did my baby respond to it? Did it work? When, when it, if you can find out why it didn't work or if it did work, then you need to write down what you learned. So, for example, oh, my baby, I've learned that my baby doesn't like laying on his back or my baby doesn't like, I don't know, laying on her stomach or whatever, but you've learned something about your baby. You've learned what a little bit about their temperament. You've learned a little bit about their communication style. You've learned a little bit about their sensory threshold. So you always want to write that down and compare it to yours. Then you need to talk about what did you learn about yourself? Well, if you have postpartum or if you have a broken leg or, you know, who knows what's happening, but mm-hmm. you need to say, okay, what did I learn about myself? Did I, is this something that works for me and doesn't work for my baby? Or does my baby need something that's not going to work for me? Um, my baby needs me to interact and I don't have any energy. Well, then it gives different options like, okay, well, what stage of development is your baby in? He's four months. He's like to grab stuff. Okay. Well, while you're laying down because you don't have any energy, lay down next to a chair and hang some rattles from the chair so your baby can play with the rattles and you're just laying next to him. We can't make the mom do anything unrealistic. We can't make mm-hmm. the caregivers, like if you have a grandma who's in a wheelchair, you can't have a grandma do anything realistic. But in this mm-hmm. chart, you can write down what works for you, what works for your baby, and how you can make it work for the relationship. So it takes into account all of those things, because I believe a healthy attachment with their baby. It doesn't matter what challenges you have, when, no matter how many adverse experiences you or the baby may have, I believe that a healthy attachment can be formed. And so the chart in this book really makes you self-reflect to say, okay, I know me, I know my baby, how can I make this work? Mm -hmm. I want to give the listeners some information because we are throwing the word attachment, 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 and bonding 
out there. And just so that we're clear, because we got to remember that a lot of individuals may not understand what we're talking about, especially if they have mm-hmm. never utilized some resources. And this is coming from, and the website is ncbi.nim.nih.gov. And they talk about of the four patterns of attachment, and we can go into depth with this. Secure attachment. And mm-hmm. what, is, what do they mean by secure attachment? So we can just give a little. A secure attachment. Of, right. Anytime you hear the word attachment, it's basically just talking about a relationship. Either you have a secure relationship, you have an avoidant relationship, you have a fearful mm-hmm. relationship, or you have a disorganized relationship. Mm-hmm. When you have a healthy, secure relationship, that's when you have a healthy balance between autonomy and intimacy. Like, for example, when a child is two years old, he's learning his autonomy. He, that's when they're getting potty trained is between two and three, and they're learning, I have my own body, and you have your own body, and I can take care of my body, and you can take care of yours then the child learns that they can also have a sense of purpose that's outside of yours. So an attachment is a healthy balance between autonomy and intimacy. If the parent is too intimate with their child and doesn't let their child explore or take risks so they can't meet their developmental milestones, again, we're not saying that, oh, that's a bad mom, but that's hindering the relationship. That's why it's mm-hmm. like it's not about the child or the mom, but it's about the relationship. The relationship is hindered when there's not a healthy balance between autonomy and intimacy. A secure one, a secure attachment is when you're okay with your own feelings and you're also okay letting yourself be accepted by somebody else with all your strengths and weaknesses. That's mm-hmm. what, you know, we're talking about as an adult, but it starts at one. It goes on from, and you know, it starts at one. Your attachment starts at one, but that's what it looks like as an adult. When you're talking about um, a, a baby, we'll say zero to three, if he has a, a disorganized attachment, that's because they've learned that their parents are somebody that they can trust. They're somebody that they can rely on. They're somebody that they meet their needs, but they're also somebody who also hurts them. Uh-huh. So they get very disorganized in their attachment. And that happens between zero to three. Some children who are, you know, physically disciplined, they become very disorganized in their attachment uh-huh. because they're like, man, this this is a person who loves and takes care of me, but they also and hurt they me. So I'm me and we talk about discipline, and we know we, I want to emphasize that discipline is to be teaching self-discipline, that it's not always about punishment. It's about redirecting maladaptive mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm looking at some information, and I want you to help me out on here because, I mean, I, I work with children, but I prefer more to work with teens and work with adults and work with parents than working with younger children. And I, like I said, I, I'm, since COVID, my phone has been blowing up with parents needing help or wanting help because they're seeing different things with their children. Now, we, mm-hmm. I talked about, you mentioned the four patterns of attachment, secure, avoidant, resistant, and disorganized. And what I'm looking at, it talks about disorganized attachment and infancy in early childhood is recognized as a powerful indicator for serious psychopathology and maladjustment in children. And children, you yep. indicated, with organized attachments are more vulnerable to stress. See, when we're in a relationship yep. with other people and they're maturing and they're growing and reaching the age of stage of development, but children, again, with the disorganized attachment are more vulnerable to stress. And so we wonder, and as a therapist, we tell people, you know, we see an individual with anxiety, which a lot of it is stress-related, but now I'm seeing mm-hmm. where part of that comes from parent-child attachment issues. Because if exactly. things are disorganized in their lives, they're vulnerable to stress. Can you speak on that? And, then, and let me say this too. And they have problems with regulations and control of negative emotions. They may display oppositional, hostile, aggressive mm-hmm. behaviors and cohesive styles of interactions. And I do the 52-week domestic violence um, program. And it indicates that okay. organized attachment is overly represented in groups of children with clinical problems and those who are victims of maltreatment. And nearly 80% of maltreated infants have disorganized attachment. Can you speak on that a little bit? Yes, perfect. Yes, because um, if you look at the statistics for sexual abuse, if you look for the statistics of physical abuse, um, and if you look for adverse ch- the statistics on adverse childhood experiences, 80 to 90% is in the home. 
80 mm. to 90 percent is in the family. It's somebody that somebody knows. It's an uncle. It's, you know, it's, it's somebody who's, who they trust. Mm-hmm. If you are learning that the people who love you are also the people who hurt you, well, then that's how you're loving too. Oh, I love you, but I also hurt you. And mm-hmm. so when you're having oppositional behaviors and you're having conduct disorders and you're having um, like explosive outbursts and things like that, well, then we're looking at the fact that how is this child communicating love? How is this child communicating mm-hmm. his intimacy? Because the intimacy is happening all negatively, but that yep. feels connected. And so it's very mm-hmm. disorganized. And, and, yes, it does start in the home. And a lot of this stuff does happen zero to five. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I'm looking at where they, they're talking about, in addition, um, disorganized attachment and infancy has been linked to internalizing and externalizing problems in the early school years mm-hmm. and poor peer interactions and unusual or bizarre behaviors in the classroom. And higher teacher rating of disassociative behaviors and internalizing systems in middle school childhood and concurrent disorganized controlling behaviors related to preschool and early school years relate to opposition defiant disorders in boys, parent rated externalizing and internally problems and high levels of teacher related social and behavioral difficulties in the classroom. And I'm bringing this up Mm -hmm. because like I said, a lot of kids are being homeschooled now. A lot of kids are, um, and parents don't know what to do. Parents are frustrated because they're not used to sitting there with a computer and and they want to just, you know, whoop the kid, beat the kid, whatever the case may be. And also Mm -hmm. at age nine years or more, many individuals with the disorganized attachment are often rejected by peers, meaning they have difficulties with friendship and they will also run into difficulties with dating relationships. And yet many individuals and women, we think we can fix them. We marry them. We date them. (laughs) (laughs) Now we got, now we really in therapy. We in couples counseling now. And we, we, right. Exactly. My mama for you know, and we're trying to get to the right. But no, the root, you, you pointed it out perfectly. A child learns their attachment from their primary caregiver. If they have learned a disorganized attachment, they are going to attach disorganizedly. They are going to have unhealthy attachments. They, it, like, I, I, I like to ask parents, I say, you know, what's your earliest, earliest memory of being completely loved? completely protected and completely understood. A lot of parents can't answer that question or can't even identify it. Mm-hmm. But that's what a child needs in order to develop a healthy attachment in order to develop healthy peers, healthy college relationships, healthy dating, healthy marriages. It starts with primary caregiver and it's not the primary caregiver that's the problem. It's not the child that's the problem. It's the relationship. And you know what? And I know we only got 12 minutes left on the show. I was waiting and I haven't checked my social media to see if anyone had any questions because I'm somebody looking at this information. And there's something else that we haven't even spoke on. We talked about the four different types, but you know, we have the other one that's new and we find it a lot of kids that are in um, group homes, foster care, been removed from their families and the reactive attachment disorder. So when we talk about attachment, it's just a rat. And we know that's a whole other special issue. Because the diagnosis yeah, so of reactive attachment. Mm-hmm. Because the parents yeah. try their best to bond, but that relationship can be seriously disturbed attachment relationship rather than no attachment relationship. Now, one of the things right. we start talking about that, and that's a psychiatric diagnosis. And, you know, at first I thought, and I say I thought, because I used to work with San Diego County and I was a term therapist. So I worked with children that were in the foster care system. And I would like, okay, this child is having issues bonding. This child is having, and the foster parent is doing their best. And now foster parent is getting accused of child abuse, but the kid is suffering from rat, but nobody wanted to talk about it. It was like, that was mm. a taboo subject. Now, with rat, That's interesting. With rat, it is a child who receives psychiatric diagnosis when, in fact, attachment involves the relationship between the child and the caregiver. 
And we need to educate individuals, I want to say, in regards to that. I think it's getting better now, but at first, they didn't want to talk about that. And even with what I'm looking yeah, at. Yeah, it's becoming more normalized. It is. It, it, it is. is becoming more normalized. It's one of the diagnoses that I commonly treat with children and parents. Um, a lot of adopted children um, mm-hmm. suffer from this. A lot mm-hmm. of this has to do with the um, the child being disconnected from their primary mm-hmm. caregiver and not being able to reconnect with another caregiver. So that might be through adoption. That might be through foster care. That might be from a mom and dad yelling at each other and the mom just, mm-hmm. and just leaves with the kid and then doesn't see the dad. It, it comes from the disconnect of a primary caregiver and not being able to reconnect. That's what causes the whole rat. Mm-hmm. When uh, Okay, so remember we talked about the secure attachment is the balance between autonomy and intimacy. When a child has reactive attachment disorder, when they are starting to feel dysregulated, whether it's anxiety, whether they're shaken, whether they are not having, they don't have the autonomy to self-regulate. Mm-hmm. So they turn to someone else to help them regulate. And when they do that, it doesn't come off like, oh, I'm feeling sad right now. Can I have a hug? No, it comes off in fighting. It comes off being easily irritated. It comes off very aggressively, but that's because they can't regulate themselves. And so with reactive attachment disorder treatment, you're really working on the autonomy piece of that Mm -hmm. attachment in order for them to be intimate with someone. It's really, Mm -hmm. really challenging, but yeah, it's, it's a big attachment challenge. And, you know, and not only with that is that, um, they're finding that all children are not in the foster care system with, that can be diagnosed with RAD. They can be in the home with the biological parents and still suffer from attachment. And then I thought about that when I was saying my grandson was crying, scratch me, mm-hmm. scratch me. I don't want to be alone. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting up thinking, Lord, am I going to have to? And I'm like, one of these days I know my daughter just going to drop him off at my doorstep with a little bowl on top of his head. Like, and I'll be like, oh, God, mm. you're going to <laughs> I had to deal with his father. <laughs> and I'm like, not right now, Lord, not right now, not in my 50s, not in my 50s. But we were talking about mm-hmm. the secure attachment and bonding because the secure, we know that it should be the easiest form, and, and that's what we really want is for everything to be, things to be secured. But the attachment bond is, is, like we said, it's important because it's the emotional connection, and it's formed by wordless communication be, between the infant and you, meaning the kids can't talk. Kids can't tell you how they feel. Kids can't tell you what they want. You know, my mother used to have this saying, and it made no sense to me, stop crying before I give you something to cry for. If I'm already crying, what the hell are you going to give me something to cry for? So a lot of times don't know what to do. Now, we know with that secure attachment bond, it ensures that your child will feel secure, understood, and calm enough to experience optimal development of his or her nervous system. Because like I said, I guess that's why Mm -hmm. I say everybody and everything get on my nerves. The child's brain yeah. develops, it organizes itself to provide the child the best foundation for life and feelings of a safety that results in eagerness to learn, healthy self-awareness, trust, and empathy. Now, when we talk about the insecure attachment bond, that fails to meet the child's security, understanding, and comprehending child from developing brain from organizing itself in the best ways. And this can mm-hmm. inhibit emotional mental and even physical development leading to difficulties in learning and in forming relationships later in life. And like I said, and the kids yep. don't think long. Before you look at it, they're um, toddlers, they're in elementary school, now they're teenagers, now they're in high school, and they never, in some cases, did not get the help that they needed when it comes to these attachments. That's right. Then we find kids right. that are um, they're going to gangs, they're using drugs, mm-hmm. they're in toxic relationships, and we wonder where is that coming from? And it is that parent-child attachment. Exactly, exactly. It's it's, it's very important. <laughs> <laughs> It's very important. I'm so passionate about it. But my book, though, it is on Amazon. It's Learning What Works, Discover Your Baby and Yourself, Shanting Register. And it's on Amazon. But that's what it's 
it's so important. It's all about attaching to your baby from birth, whether you're a primary caregiver or the actual biological mom, it doesn't matter if that baby can connect or reconnect. We are on a path for good development. Mm-hmm. I like that. And I know that on um, your website or you, the people call you, you'll be like, I'm booked. I almost like, yeah, I'm booked. Never gonna have any availability. <laughs> I'll be trying to send kids your way when they be calling me. I'll be like, uh, you know, I'm not really, yeah, and I don't know if you want your child really talking to me, you know, unless it's a teenager <laughs> with major problems, I can deal with that. But the other stuff, I just right. like, okay. So, uh, where no, can they I, find you if they're interested in even coming to get some work or working and bringing their children to you to be seen? How can they find you? Um, ShantiMentalHealth.com, S-H-A-N-T-I, MentalHealth.com. I I am full for individual therapy, but I am going to start um, some parent education. I just got to get my curriculum and whether I'm going to do individualized sessions with parents, which I think will be much, much better because then I can focus on the relationship. Um, I just got to figure out how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to start something just for find that on my website. Um, but right now um, I'm totally booked with clients. Yeah. And you know, and it is a challenge. And even when parents call me and they first want to know, do you have any availability? And I'm like, I'm booked for about a month. And but I will mm-hmm. hear them out. I will try to provide them with the proper resources. And you I'm know, I've learned that they appreciate that because what happens in most cases is parents really just want to be heard. Parents really right. want no so if you do, exactly. And anybody who wants to call me for a fifteen minute consultation, I will get on the phone and I will consult with you and try to refer you to the best place that can really meet your needs. Um, because that's so important. Sometimes you just need somebody to like point you in the right direction and I'm totally here for that. Mhm. And and you know, and I've learned that parents appreciate that. Even if it's eight o'clock at night, I'm calling people back because I know that yep. I <laughs> have the availability. Some One lady told me, well, I guess you're too busy for me. Um, you're absolutely right. And it's not that I'm being mean, yep. but I take, I take time out of my day to help individuals as best I can. And that's the importance of this show. That's the importance of mm-hmm. putting this platform out there so that they have resources available. So that even if you cannot connect with me or if I'm not available to see you face-to-face and a lot of parents are not feeling comfortable with telehealth because they don't know what it is and trying to educate individuals about telehealth services. And I'm, I mean, I'm quite sure it's a challenge to uh, mm-hmm. work with children via telehealth because sometimes plate therapy can help, using sand trays can yeah. help, a lot of different therapeutic yeah. tools that therapists use in order to help connect with children. And, you know, so we just have to implement patience, understanding, resources, having compassion, and work with the child, and the child can work with you. And I like the way you were talking about, you know, we got to be attuned to their sensory threshold. That's very important because before anybody can attach to anyone, you got to be attuned to them. And we got to yep. be careful with our high levels of emotional processing. You see, I threw that out there again. That's going to be a whole other show. Yeah. So, <laughs> yes. I would join in too. <laughs> because, but no, emotionally, <laughs> we've got a lot of stuff going on and trying to process That's that. Right. If it's high, you're not balanced. You're out of whack if your emotional processing level is high. People don't realize that. That's right. When you're worried about how you go feed them, how you go educate them, how you go clothe them, and now I got to love them too, a lot of parents used to right. say, go girl, we're going to wind up going over the show. But a lot of parents used to Parenting say. Parenting is so hard. Her, parents used to say, at least I, you got a roof over your head, you got food to eat, you don't have to worry about it. But if, if the child is saying, scratch me, and you got all of that. Yes. Like, understanding this. Yes. And see, you really good because you're attuned to yourself to know that he's getting on your nerves. That's you. That's not him. See, that's a tune, man. You could take care of that and still the tune and provide for his needs and go scratch him. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't scratch him. I got up off that bunk bed because I'm trying to connect by trying to get him to sleep in his own bed because he got a bunk bed. So I figured I'll sleep at the bottom bunk. 
girl, I grabbed my little yeah, pillow. Yeah, that's good. Girl, he wouldn't stop crying. And when I grabbed the pillow and got my butt, got out the bed, he was at the edge of the boat bed watching me leave. Talking about, don't leave me. <laughs> I said, dang. Oh. away. So then he comes in my room. And so I try to communicate verbally with my children and my grandchildren. And it's like my daughter keeps teaching him, use your words, use your words. So he's very good with using his words, but it's regulating his emotions. That's so the very issue. first thing is you can't regulate if you can't identify him. He has oh, to first say, I feel sad. I feel oh, angry. I feel scared. Yeah, I was going to say that's the very first step is identifying your feelings, and then we can manage them. Girl, the boy told me, I don't want to be alone. I don't oh, want to be alone. What the hell are you for? <laughs> I don't want to be alone. <laughs> I'm going to have to come meet him. <laughs> Girl, uh, you're going to fall in love with him because he's very charming. He's very charming. Oh, all kids me? are charming. Oh, my God. See, give me the give me the kids yeah. that are angry. Give me the kids that want to go blow up something, that want to beat somebody. Now, I can work with kids like that all day long. So if you have a child mm-hmm. with a behavioral issue, I could deal with that. But the kids that don't want to be alone. And, are internalized, I mean, yeah. Girl, you, it's hard. You it's hard. You, you, you got to like, you have a whole lot of lonely days at four. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. And the good thing is, like I said, one of the things that helped my grandchildren is that they do have a grandmother that is a therapist. So that does help right. a lot because I'm open-minded and I do my best. But girl, my grandson be trying to have me run away from home. I, I got to pack up and leave in the middle of the night. He'll call me FaceTime me. Mm. Ready, you coming back? Granny, I was like, I don't need But you see what he's saying, right? He's saying that you're his safe attachment figure. I know. If you want that to change, you have to redirect his safe attachment figure to his mom or his dad. But if that's impossible, then you are the safe attachment figure, and you're going to have to step up to the role. Yeah, but this kid will pretend like he's sick at school. To he would, uh, I, I I broke my leg. He hopping. So then I get him down. He gets here, right? Because he got to go to the doctor. I said, Ryder, mm-hmm. a rat. Girl, Ryder started running. I said, ain't nothing wrong with your leg. I said, you pretended to be sick. Look, Ryder got an unmet need. Ryder has an unmet need. All kids need attention because they have to grow. If they're not mm-hmm. going to get it positively, they're going to get it negatively because that's the only way children grow is through attention, you know, a study that mm-hmm. all the kids died in the cribs overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have, they need that to be alive. But what there's something that I'm telling you, Ryder has unmet need. I don't know what it is. I never met him, but he does. But his need, he act like it's unmet. Is he want his granny? It's it's he, they granny need to. But death. it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. It's the reason why are you put it like this? Why are you his safe attachment figure? Whatever the answer to that question is, sure. is his problem. Look, when the courts was trying to, like, say he can go to his granny, I was like, Your Honor, um, time out. I can't do menopause and the baby at the same time. I can't do both. Oh, That's goodness. not fair to me. So I I get it. And his dad do the same thing to me, which you heard on the show yesterday. Them two right there. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I just say, Randy, why you call me Reggie? Reggie say, Reggie, why you call me Ryder? I'm like... Y'all gonna mm-hmm. make me get around here. All right. We over time, huh? If we're talking about parent child attachment, we need to start talking about granny attachment, you know? Can we can do that. There's, we call it grandma house. house. Girl, uh-uh, wait a minute. <laughs> I have grandkids that, thank God I haven't been going to my office. I'm doing telehealth. Girl, they used to peek through my mailbox, granny. I know you in there. I know you're in there, Granny. Open the door, Granny. They would leave school and walk to my office. There's an unmet need there. And I know that I'm their safe attachment. I I get that. I I totally get that. I totally. But the only thing is I try to implement boundaries because I try to let their parents parent them and then let me be grandmother because I don't want my grandmother. That's what I was going to say. It needs to be redirected. The the fact Mm -hmm. that you're the safe attachment figure is the problem. We need to redirect that back to his parents. Yep, that's true. 
That is so true. That's a good one. That's a good one. And um, and I think that part of that is cultural, too, and um, generational. Yeah, I'm sure. Because in our culture, especially African-American cultures, grandparents always played a role. Grandmas. I remember I used yeah. to always, when I got mad at my mother, I'd be like, I'm telling my grandmother, I'm going over Mama's house. Mama Jean did, da 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 girl, honey, I was notorious for that one. And now it's coming back on me to bite me in the butt. So, and I'm just trying to break the generational curse is basically what I do. Right. I try to provide my grandkids more attention, more affection, and show them how to love because a lot of parents don't know how to do that. Their love is, I am your provider. You got a roof over your head, food to eat. But we miss the social connection. We miss the emotional yeah. because the parents have difficulties regulating their emotions. And so we exactly. have to talk to parents. Well, I want to thank you for yes. joining me on the show today. We do need to do more work together. I guess both of us. Yes, thank you for having me. No problem. We got to learn how to work the social media thing. So maybe we can do some Zoom conferences to do some some parenting. You can be the intellectual part. I could be the funny part. You know, I can make it fun. Okay. <laughs> I can make it fun. Make okay. It funny. Okay. I, I love it. You got to redirect it. Like, no, that's not how you do it. <laughs> It's a plan. It'll be so fun. (laughs) All right, Jeanette. I'll see you next week. (laughs) All right. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us here at Precious Predicaments Blog Talk Radio. As today, we were talking about parent-child attachment. Again, it's never too late to attach. It's never too late to restore your relationship. And so if you know that there's been problems, you can just always forgive yourself, apologize to your child, even if your child is an adult. If you're watching your adult mm-hmm. children struggle with how they're raising their children, please, I don't want to say intervene, but get involved to help them, to help mm-hmm. their children, so that we can create a safe, healthy, productive society as it relates to our children. Okay? Thank you very much. And until next week, remember, you got this. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.